It's so good to be with you this morning on, yes, this Mother's Day, and as it has already been referred to several times, I just want to add not only my word of greeting, uh, but also a greeting to all you mothers, and um, I'd like to say Happy Mother's Day. Uh, We see you in all of your efforts and sacrifice that is almost always hidden. It's almost always behind the scenes um, and goes, uh, for the most part, underappreciated and often even taken for granted. But we want to stop today and pause and say thank you. Thank you for the way that you love sacrificially and unconditionally what a picture of Christ you are and the way that you nurture your children, your grandchildren, your families. Uh, we are forever indebted uh, to the mothering that you do, and we want to just acknowledge that and say thank you. Um, I'm sure that uh, there are those that was mentioned in our video. I'm thankful that Tracy put together that video, great video. There are those uh, on any Mother's Day uh, in the church that long to be mothers and haven't yet had that privilege, and we just want to say to you, we, we do love you and we long with you. If that is your desire, then we will pray uh, with you towards that end, and, uh, and we'll trust God with you uh, towards that end, and, uh, and ask that his spirit gives you comfort along the way. And, uh, and, and then I just want to say, uh, uh, I know that when I was growing up, I know now that I had a great mother. Um, a- among mothers, she would rank somewhere near the top, just singularly great in, uh, in her unbelievable ability to love and nurture and be patient and long-suffering with me. And yet I know then that I took it for granted without a shadow of a doubt. I did not appreciate her the way that uh, I wish I would have, and of course the way that I should have. Now when I see my wife, who is the best mother I've ever known, when I see her mother my, uh, our children, our five boys, I don't take it for granted. I'm astounded at what I see. I'm, um, I'm flabbergasted every single day as I watch what she does and how she does it. Um, I'm literally left uh, in awe. I'm left speechless. I deeply appreciate uh, every moment of her sacrifice. I feel like her life is just poured out as a drink offering to the Lord and how she loves these children. And, 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 and most of the time, it's a thankless work. And so I certainly do not take for granted anymore uh, what a mother is to be and, and, and how they impact and influence lives, families, our community. There's just nothing more significant than a mother's nurturing role in the home. And so I'm deeply grateful. And now I look back at my own mother um, and and all that she did that I took for granted. And I do want to say to my own mom this morning, a special happy Mother's Day. Um, I'm so thankful for your example and for your patience, for your love, for your tenderness. And it was 26 years ago uh, when my father passed. I was 16 and, uh, and mom, you uh, encouraged me then to trust in the Lord and the deep hurt that I had, that his grace would be sufficient. That was the scriptural promise that you encouraged me with. And I just want to say for 26 years, um, I've watched you be an example in trusting the Lord with the things that we can't control. Uh, mom, you've been through a lot of suffering, uh, a lot of difficulty, some seasons of real hardship and loneliness. And you've handled it with such grace and such class, uh, and most of all, such dependence. You just are a woman who clings to Jesus, and you have no idea the example that that has been to me. So I just wanted to say to my own mother, thank you so much. When I get to um, heaven, 
and I see Jesus, one of the things that I will thank him for first is a godly mother. So happy Mother's Day, ladies. Uh, I wore my pink suit today. I don't know if this comes through and with the background, maybe it doesn't, but uh, this is to honor my own mother and my sweet wife, Catherine, who's an unbelievable mother, and all of you mothers. I wanted to honor you uh, today. So um, our text is really an appropriate text for Mother's Day. We're, We're continuing on in the Gospel of John, and we're going to be studying this morning about the Holy Spirit. And the reason I think it's such an appropriate text, one, the Holy Spirit, by name, Jesus will, will refer to him in our text this morning as the helper. Uh, and, and that truly is, is uh, the advocate, the counselor, the helper, that's what a mother is. And, and, uh, and at the same time, um, I think among the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, it's the spirit that generally is undervalued. Um, it's the spirit that is the unsung hero uh, of the three persons of the Trinity, and that too is so much of what a mother is. She often goes undervalued. She's the unsung hero, and yet the work she does, just like the work the Holy Spirit does in our life, is not just necessary, it's crucial. It brings delight to our life in Christ. And so I want to read our text this morning, and then we'll be talking about an awesome passage, uh, just three verses this morning about the Holy Spirit out of John chapter 14. Verses 15 through 17. So if you're able to stand, uh, I'd invite you to do so for the reading of God's word. John 14, 15 through 17 reads this way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is the word of God for the people of God. And the people of God said, praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful this morning for mothers. We're thankful for the nurturing spirit that a mother gives. I remember Paul speaking to the Thessalonians saying, we loved you like a mother. And we immediately have an image there. We know what a loving mother is. We know the blessing of a mother's love. We know the necessity of a mother's love. Uh, We know that um, life would have too many straight edges without that nurturing, forgiving, patient touch that a mother brings in our lives that is so crucial to our formation. So we thank you. We pause and thank you for our own mothers and uh, the blessing that they have been in our lives. And Lord, we see through them in the providence of uh, your timing a great picture of the Holy Spirit who is present in the life of a believer, rarely valued, often taken for granted, and yet constantly doing a crucial, uh, necessary work of guiding and loving and healing and counseling and helping in our lives. And so I pray this morning as we look into your word, we would appreciate our mothers, but we would be uh, uh, really exposed to the truth of your spirit, to the truth of who you are as spirit in our own lives, and uh, that these words would be impressed upon our minds and hearts, that we would never forget them, that we would cling to them, that we would have a deeper understanding of who you are, Holy Spirit, and how to relate to you this morning, that we would unlock some, some, uh, some doors to greater intimacy and greater obedience and greater fulfillment that comes in knowing Jesus, our Savior and Lord. So I pray that as I speak, I would decrease, Lord Jesus, you must increase. 
It's in your name I pray, amen. Okay, so if you were to read the uh, uh, four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's obviously distinctives in each one. One of the things you'll notice about John is he gives more ink to the Holy Spirit. All, All four gospel writers write of the Holy Spirit. You'll run into the Holy Spirit in all four gospel accounts, but you get more. Uh, in the Gospel of John. In John 3, the uh, famous conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus, to be born again is to be born of the Holy Spirit. There's a work the Holy Spirit does to regenerate your heart that is essential for salvation. In John 7, uh, when Jesus stands up and talks about anyone who is thirsty may come to him, he also says that everyone who believes in him will receive the Holy Spirit after he is glorified. And so it is. In the very words, there's a promise of Christ. And then in John 13 through 16, in this upper room discourse we're in at present, we're going to get five mentions, and um, each of those mentions adds more clarity and color and context to who the Holy Spirit is. So five times. So so this won't be a one and done on the Holy Spirit. We're, We're going to be lingering around the Holy Spirit for really the next month in our teaching because Jesus lingers around the topic of the Holy Spirit, which again, imagine being one of the original disciples. They're saying, who, what? What, who, who's coming? What will he do? How will we receive him? And so Jesus is going to circle this uh, several times, and we'll have the privilege of doing the same over these next few weeks to gain some clarity. And of course, we have a great advantage over the disciples. We don't just have the words of Jesus that we're trying to make sense of. We as believers have the experience of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus will even refer to in this passage. So um, critical. Uh, I said it in the intro. I'll say it again. We come and we worship God. We generally think of God the Father. We come and we worship Jesus the Son. Most of our songs are about Jesus the Son being glorified, which is the Spirit's greatest desire. I don't think anyone is happier than the Holy Spirit when we are glorifying Christ. His entire work is that we might glory in Jesus and glorify Jesus. And yet, at least I don't generally come and think of worshiping God the Spirit. It feels like to me we worship the Father, we worship the Son, we kind of give a head nod to the Spirit. And, uh, and the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The theology of that will come right out in our first two verses here today. So he is no less than the Father. He's no less than the Son. He's no less in substance. He's no less in, in godness. Uh, he's no less in vitality of our salvation, of our sanctification, of our glorification. And so I hope that this morning we will gain a deeper appreciation for who the Holy Spirit is and the privilege it is to have him as our helper. So watch these words. John 15, this is still Jesus speaking, upper room discourse, just before he will go to the cross. This is a part of the conversation he's having with the disciples. So verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And let me just stop and say that that's, that's not a commandment in itself, that's a fact. If you, believer, talking to disciples, talking to all believers, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Two things that jump out of me about that is the one that we are not meant to be just a believing people. We're not just the people who believe in an orthodox set of um, doctrine, uh, doctrinal points and tenets. We don't just believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died in our place and for our sin and rose from the dead on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven where he was seated until the day he returns and that our salvation is accomplished in his blood. True. We we aren't merely a people who ascribe to truth. We're a people who receive Jesus, not merely as Savior, but as Lord. You will obey. Um, And the thing is, that's not this oppressive thing. That's not Jesus saying, 
you better figure it out. That's him stating something that will be true of a believer. A believer's heart, who has sincerely understood his sin and the truth of Christ and the work of Christ on his behalf, his heart is squeezed. He understands that Christ has loved him or her, and his or her response is a desire to make much of Jesus' sacrifice for me. It's a desire to follow, a desire to love, a desire to obey. That's how we, we show our love. We demonstrate our love through obedience. So our delight is in him. Uh, that, that's one of the great evidences that we're believers, that we used to desire rebellion against God. That was the natural path we took. We didn't want to have anything to do with him. We didn't really care what his word said or how we might be in alignment with it or whether we were. But as a believer, part of the uh, conversion experience, the regenerating experience as we are awakened to the beauty of the gospel, the truth of Christ, and we now have a desire for him that used to be for the world. There's still some world there. That desire for the world is, is a slowly dying desire. It's a fire that's being put out, but there's another fire that's growing in our heart, and it's a love for Jesus. So it's a fact. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, if you uh, are like me, you read that, and you have a general thought Every time I read those words, I kind of pause and I think, okay, do I really love Jesus? <laughs> because, I'm, because if you knew me, I, I'm not always obedient. Matter of fact, it was funny. This morning, uh, Luke, my uh, 10-year-old, climbed up into bed. I was sitting on the bed just reading this passage, just meditating on it, uh, its words, the words of God in this passage and in the sermon this morning. And he just laid next to me quietly, and at some point I began to process out loud. I said, Luke, do you know that Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? I said, Luke, what do you think of that? And he said, I can't. Isn't that something? That's, honestly, that's good theology, and yet it's a fact that you will. I said, well, well Luke, what, what do you mean? What do you mean you can't? He says, I can't obey him. I, I don't always obey him. And I said, well, is your desire to obey him? He said, yes. I said, what do you need? He said, I need him. I need him to help. That's exactly how I feel. I read this. I'm saying, Jesus says, if you love me, Kenan, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I'm saying, I need help. And that's why well, I love this passage. It's like he was two steps ahead of us. He's saying, Jesus saying here, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 16. And I will ask the Father. You who are in need to do what you desire to do, now that you love me and want to obey, and yet you can't, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Praise God. Jesus read our mail. He knew the problem was that we would have a desire to obey, but the inability to act at least well or faithfully or certainly not perfectly on our desires. And in his love, he said, I'm going to give you another helper. Now, the, the wording there is important, so let me just start with that. Uh, he does say, by the way, about the helper, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. So the helper is not merely a force. He's going to name him. His name is the spirit of truth. He's the Holy Spirit. And yet, it's, he's, not, he's not an it. It's not just a force. It's not just we don't merely have a Godhead who is two persons and the, the force that is with you that is the Son's spirit in a kind of uh, a passive neutral sense. No, there's an entire another helper 
who is a him, not an it, a him. Uh, so he is defined here as a person. It's not a, it's not a, a neutral word there. It, it's, a, it's a he, just like he's a he, just like the father and the son and the spirit. And that word another, there's two ways to say another. In the Greek, there's alas and heteros. Now, this is important. I don't want to spend too much time here. But heteros would say another of a different kind. So if you take a man and you take a woman, you'd say, all right, all right, they're similar, but they're different. Here's another. This woman is another of a different kind. And every husband that's been married for any amount of time says, amen. Very different. Okay, well, Jesus doesn't use heteros talking about the spirit. He uses alas, which is to say another of the exact same kind. Same substance, same everything. This is a Trinitarian statement. This is a, that word, that use of alas is to say the spirit is every bit as much God as I am God, as the Father is God. So you've got right here the three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. Um, the, the helper is the third person of the same substance as the Son and the Father who will be given to us, and there it is, for the purpose of helping. Now, I, I understand that when we think of the word help, we generally think, at least I think, of someone who kind of comes along and gives an assist. Like, I've almost got it done, uh, but I just need a little boost, a little word of encouragement here and there, a little reminder of truth here and there, uh, just a little something to get me over the top. And that would be a, a, a uh, that, that, that actually is probably the way many of us operate in our Christian life. We generally think we can do it with enough discipline, with enough elbow grease, if I just spend enough time doing what is right, and the Spirit fills in a few gaps. We probably even have a working theology that is erroneous that thinks it's about 90% us, but we need that last 10%. Couldn't be further from the truth. Let me try to illustrate it this way. When I was growing up, I was um, the only son between two daughters, or between two girls, my older and younger sisters, and uh, my dad would often call me his little buddy and his little helper. And, and we would do father-son stuff together. I remember one project we did, I was probably about 10 years old, and um, I don't know if it was dad's idea just uh, out of generosity or if it was my desire, but uh, we had a little backyard, a little grassy space in the backyard, and, and dad had asked me one time if, if I wanted to uh, build with him a basketball court. And so this was no full-size court. This was no concrete court. This was uh, taking an area and, and building up a barrier out of railroad ties, pouring some dirt in there, flattening it out, and having kind of a little homemade court. And I said, yes. And, and so he said, okay, I'll, I'm going to take as many Saturdays as it takes, and we're going to build this thing together. I'll lead the way, and you'll be my helper. And for about the next four Saturdays, we had these massive railroad ties brought and dumped off in our driveway. And these are those eight-foot, you know, uh, cubed uh, railroad ties you've probably seen there, uh, two or three hundred pounds each. And my dad, who was a, a large, muscular man, would, uh, would, would, would work. I remember just the sweat dripping off his body as he would prop these things onto his thighs. Then he'd get them up to a press. Then he would work his body around underneath the tie. Then he had a leather strap, and he'd swing the leather strap over and catch it. And he would bring this thing up onto his back. And he would walk it about uh, 30 yards to where it would go down. And, and, and you may say, well, what, what, how were you helping? Well, I, I opened the gate. Uh, I opened the gate. Dad walked through. I shut it behind him. I'd walk alongside him as he strained and grunted. I'd be like, almost there, Dad. I think, I think you're going to make it. 
And then when he'd put it down, I would cheer and walk on it and put the level on there to make sure it was straight. Now, I was helping, but I think anyone that was watching that would notice that I was not essential to the work. I wasn't really necessary. Dad was involving me for relationship because he loved me, but not because I was necessary to the work. And one more example of this that I remember vividly, and uh, many of you guys were so nice to, to make signs that, uh, of your faces, of your families, to give me something to look at when I'm preaching, and it is extremely heartwarming and encouraging. One of the signs says, hey, Kenan, please tell us another ranch story. So I'm not sure who made that sign, but here you go. Um, when I was uh, in my youth, my favorite day of the year, I should be careful, favorite or second favorite next to Christmas, but was, uh, was on spring break when we would go to the ranch, there was one day of the year we would round up the cattle. So you can think of a, a movie you may have seen where you've seen this happen, but over our nearly 400 acres, we would go out early, we would begin to drive the cattle in one direction, some on horseback, some on little scouts and four-wheelers, some on foot. And each time we'd kind of clear a pasture, we'd close gates behind them, and we'd work them and work them and work them until we finally got them into the area and they were to the house where the pins my grandfather had built were there. And we'd eventually work the entire herd into a line, and one by one, they would go through this process where we would vaccinate them. And there was uh, usually five of us, I say us, loosely, liberally. Again, I was there. I was a helper. I was the young buck. It was my grandfather, my father, and usually two cowboys who were um, uh, for hire that were in the area that would come and help. And, or occasionally it was a couple of my dad's friends. And um, I remember this day, I loved the smell, I loved the feel, I loved being there with my, my dad and granddad and doing this work. And uh, I remember that as we run the cattle through, the, the final thing, we'd put our strongest man, which was usually my father or this hulking cowboy named James. And one of those two would be on the gate, the last gate, which means after everything you had done, when this cow came through this pen and it was not excited about being in the pen and it got into the single foul line and it was being prodded from the back, it would lunge and launch and try to escape through the hatch and jump out. And if it did, you just missed your chance to vaccinate that cow for 12 more months. It was gone. And so there was a, a massive gate that probably weighed, well, it definitely weighed several hundred pounds. And you had to have somebody on it that when that cow's uh, head, nose got through the beginning of the gate, he would clamp down and it would trap that cow and its shoulders would bang into the gate and the entire pen would shake and it was trapped. And then another guy would slide a, a massive log, probably an 80-pound log behind that cow's feet so it couldn't kick, couldn't go backwards, couldn't go forwards. Now you could work on this individual cow. My grandfather would immediately go to work. He was, I don't know how he knew how to do what he did. He was like a veterinarian. He would begin uh, launching pills down the cow's throat uh, that were necessary. He would put shots in the cow's backside. There was a, uh, another cowboy that was working to trim the cow's horns to make sure there was nothing dangerous going on. Again, my father was holding down on the gate, and I had a job. I was on a stool on the safe side of the uh, pen, all the cattle on one side, I was on the other, and I had a cup. And, uh, and I would dip my cup into uh, this uh, kind of paint jar of some kind of fly ointment. And I would just dip it in and I would pour it down the back. And that was my job. It, it kind of kept, it, it, it kept the flies off the cow for some amount of time. Man, it was a big deal. They, they went through the checkpoints on every cow. And, and, uh, and I got to say, um, uh, good to go every time. And I remember just how special it felt to be a part of the action. I was a helper. Oh, I, I forgot. I don't know if this is appropriate on Mother's Day, but we did separate all the little bull calves, and, and, uh, and usually my father and one of the cowboys were also uh, 
making those bull calves into steer. Okay, so that's a different story for a non-Mother's Day sermon. But my job, my job was such that uh, I was a part of it, but no necessary critical. There was nothing that I, if I wasn't manning my post, wouldn't get done. Now, when, I, when you think of helper, and this is generally how I think of the work of the Holy Spirit, kind of there, kind of putting that last little bit of fly on me down, I'm doing the heavy lifting, uh, couldn't be further from the contextual understanding of helper. Matter of fact, let me uh, uh, bring it back to Mother's Day a little bit. Over the last week, just as this text has been rolling around in my head, I've been watching Catherine with our boys. Now, this would be a much truer understanding of what the Holy Spirit is us. Uh, especially our little two-year-old. Mac turns two in about a month. And just watching her this week with Mac, I noticed he hungers. And he can let you know that he hungers. He has ways. He'll run to the refrigerator and, and reach up. He will point to other people's food and make noises. Uh, sometimes she can just tell by looking at him. But when he hungers, he needs to eat. That's a good desire. That's an instinctive, good, God-given desire. And yet he cannot do anything to feed himself, nor would he know what to feed himself in such a way that would help him to be healthy and grow. He's completely reliant on her to understand his need and see his hunger and fill it with the proper nutrients that he might grow healthily, and she does it. And he grows in his ability to trust that she has his best interest in mind, even that goes beyond his wants to his very needs. And there's this thing that's developed between them. And I just watched it this week thinking about this, where he implicitly trusts her. He doesn't always like what she gives him. Sometimes he wants something different. But he's learned to trust her, that she knows what's best for him more than he does, and he can't possibly meet his needs apart from her help. Of course, the same thing's true when he thirsts. The same thing's even true when he communicates. He is in that stage where he, he mumbles out words. He tries uh, he, he, it sounds like gibberish, and occasionally you pick up a, a word in there. Of course, the word he knows the most is mama. It's, that one's very clear, and he loves to say it. And when he has her attention, it's amazing what happens. Out, We were driving in the car yesterday, and I, I told her, I said, it's amazing to me to watch this. He says full, his tone is like he's having a full-blown conversation. I hear it, it sounds like complete Swahili. And she responds in perfect English like she heard and understood everything he just said. And they go on and on. And I'll literally say, do you, are, do you know what he's saying? So yeah, he's asking for an Oreo. And I told him we're not having treats at this time, but we can have a healthy snack. And then he complained a little bit about the healthy snack, but I told him it's what he's got. And I'm, that, how in the world are you getting that? See, he can groan and she can translate even so that I can understand how to meet his need, which is one of the specific Romans 8 purposes of the Holy Spirit, to translate our groans so that the Father can uh, minister to us accordingly. Now listen, uh, the way that Catherine helps Mac is the way the Holy Spirit helps us. We have new desires, new cravings, new delights, needs beyond our wants, an inability to even communicate well, and the Holy Spirit meets us in our need as the helper, the one who quenches, uh, who helps uh, extinguish fleshly desires, who helps fan the flame of godly desires, who curbs wants that are not good for us and fans needs, who uh, translates uh, even our groanings and our longings, who helps uh, feed us and nourish us with the word of God. 
the Holy Spirit, in the same way that Mac could not possibly navigate this world in any sort of healthy way apart from his mama, we can't navigate this world spiritually in any sort of a healthy way apart from the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus said, I'm gonna give you another one. This is the third person of the Trinity. He's a helper in a necessary, essential, and crucial way. And he's with you forever. Isn't that good news? That when we screw up, when we sin, when we don't heed what he says, when we, there's verses in the Bible that say, don't quench the spirit. First uh, Thessalonians 5, 19. Do not uh, grieve the spirit, Ephesians 4, 30. Even when we do, he's not going anywhere. The Holy Spirit, from the moment he takes up residence in us, which I'll talk about in a moment, he is with us and he'll be with us forever. There's an assurance there. And it says, even the spirit of truth. Now, this is his name, the spirit of truth. A, a question immediately arises. Luke, as I was processing this out loud this morning, said, Dad, so uh, at Pentecost, did everyone get a tongue of fire above them or was that just the disciples? Does everyone have the Holy Spirit? What a beautiful question. Uh, th this has caused a lot of confusion and even division in the church today. There are entire denominations that teach the idea that there are some Christians who are, uh, have the Holy Spirit, they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and some haven't. Now, I'm going to clarify in a minute. I do not think that's a biblical thought, so don't, don't be confused for a moment on this. Uh, but that, uh, uh, the idea that you can be saved and not yet have the Holy Spirit. You can have trust in Jesus, repent of your sins with a sincere heart, truly been born again, and, not, and still need some second work of grace subsequent to salvation where you receive the Holy Spirit. Where in the world does this idea even come from? Well, uh, very quickly, in the book of Acts, of course, at Pentecost, Acts chapter two, there's three instances it comes from. And Acts is a, is a historical narrative. It's a descriptive book. It's not prescriptive didactic teaching like we get in the epistles, Romans through Jude. But in these three instances, Pentecost, of course, of course they were waiting. Of course they believed in Jesus and did not have the Holy Spirit yet. They were with Jesus. He says, I will go away. I will send you the helper. So they waited and they received. Clearly this is a transitionary time uh, that is not like what it is like for you and I to receive Jesus at a time after Christ has already been glorified. Well, then there's Acts 8, there's Philip in Samaria who has a ministry there, and it's the Samaritans. By the way, the Jews believe the Samaritans were worse than dogs. They were half-breeds. They, they couldn't imagine a Samaritan being saved, and Philip has a ministry that's, that's, uh, that's growing among the Samaritans, and Peter and James show up, and they teach, or Peter and John, and they teach, and the, whole, the Holy Spirit comes upon believers, and uh, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And I, I don't know why God did it this way. I do know it's not the prescriptive way we receive the Holy Spirit because that's taught in the epistles. I'll give you that in a moment. My hunch and what most scholars I read say is that it was for the sake of the Jewish community having to embrace the Samaritans, full inclusion into the gospel of Christ, having to embrace them as brothers and sisters, not as the JV team. They've they, it was proof to even the apostles that the Samaritans could be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. So it was a demonstration to the apostles, to Peter, that they were saved by the giving of the Holy Spirit subsequent to their believing in Christ. And then there's Acts 19, which some refer to. I think it's altogether different. There were some that Paul uh, um, is... Uh, Near, I believe it's Ephesus, where he, he, uh, he goes to some who were John the Baptist's disciples and says, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they say, what are you talking about? We've just been baptized by John the Baptist, a baptism of repentance. We're we, uh, one that is uh, making ourselves ready to receive 
the coming Messiah. And Paul says, well, wait no longer. And they receive a baptism in Jesus' name and receive the Holy Spirit. So I, I don't think they were even believers until they were baptized. Now, that's it. In terms of do we ever have some, something that tells us that we need to be baptized in the Spirit after salvation, someone might run you to one of those passages. And, and that's why I wanted to explain this. You're not going to see anything else like that in the rest of your Bible. And that's critical because don't you think the necessity and crucial nature of the Holy Spirit that Jesus says will be the one given to you, the third person of the Trinity, so that you can obey my commands according to your desire? Don't you think it's crucial we know how to receive the Holy Spirit? And in all of the epistles which explain the theology of our gospel, it's like acorns right here in the gospels that become oaks in the epistles. All the explanation, we get no teaching, not a word of teaching that says, receive Jesus, trust in him, and then here's how you receive the Holy Spirit. Nothing, not gonna find anything like that. What you do receive, and I already mentioned this in John 7, Jesus said, uh, matter of fact, I'll read it to you because it's just a few pages to my left. He said this about the Holy Spirit, that out of his heart would flow rivers of uh, living water. He said this about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive once Jesus was glorified. Okay, well, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and I'd write this verse down. Here's the only verse in your New Testament that clearly teaches didactically of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the word of God reads this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For in one spirit, we, were, we as the brothers and sisters of Christ, even in the Corinthian church, which was a messed up, upside down, fleshly, carnal church. So it wasn't like, well, they, they were all just this mature, no, 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 no. They, it was a messy body, like everybody, if truth be, like everybody of Christ, truth be told. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is it. This is what you get teaching, that all of us in Christ were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. This happens the moment you were saved. Uh, incidentally, let me recommend a resource, one of my Favorite simple books on the Holy Spirit, not, not something that you're going to get lost in or, 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 I mean, just simple, clean, clear, well-illustrated. One of my favorite teachers is a man named Tony Evans. I've even referred to him uh, recently. He wrote a short book on the Holy Spirit called The Promise. I'd highly recommend it to you over the next month as we study the Holy Spirit. I think it could be a great uh, resource and complement to God's Word. Well, here's a quote on the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, from the promise from Tony Evans. Baptism marks the beginning of the Spirit's indwelling presence. It is the time when true believers become identified with Jesus Christ and placed into his body. Baptism occurs at the moment of our conversion. Again, we don't have any evidence of this not being true in Scripture. It is what's taught in Scripture. Again, the exception really being Acts chapter 8. Okay, so the understanding is the moment you trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes you and places you into the body of Jesus Christ. Can you be a Christian and not be a part of the body of Christ? I hope in your living room you're shouting, no, that would be crazy. That's right, you can't be. You have to be baptized into the body at the moment you're converted. And the moment you're converted, the Spirit places you into the body of Christ and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. You are in Christ, he is in you. 1 Corinthians 6, 
10 and following says your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. He takes up residence in you. That first quote referred to it. This is called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Another quote from Dr. Evans on indwelling. The indwelling of the Spirit refers to the Spirit's taking up permanent, remember what it said? He'll be with you forever. Permanent residence in the life of the believer. So a couple of things that happen the moment you're saved. Of course, you're uh, taken from the domain of darkness and placed into the kingdom of uh, uh, God's dear son. You're taken from darkness to light. There's an illumination of the truth of Christ. There's a conversion where you are converted from uh, sin to righteousness. Literally, uh, you were a sinner in need of a savior, and now you have, it's been imputed to you the very righteousness of God in Christ. By grace, you didn't earn it, through faith in Jesus. So conversion, regeneration. John 3 talks about the uh, Holy Spirit. He regenerates, he quickens to life your dead heart. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, in his mercy, he made us alive with Christ. How does he do that? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit regenerates. That's what Jesus tells Nicodemus. You must be born again. It's a birth of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit regenerates. He enlivens your heart. In that very moment, he places you into the body of Christ. In that very moment, he takes up residence in you. That is regeneration. That is baptism. That is indwelling. By the way, some kind of helper, right? This is not an incidental. He's not opening the gate so that we walk through as we do all the heavy lifting. He is the one that quickens us to salvation. And that's even another work, even a pre-salvific work of the Holy Spirit in our life is calling that the Father draws us, John 6, to himself. How does he do that? Well, he does it through the work of the Holy Spirit, that burden of our sin, uh, that uh, bringing us to an awareness of our need for salvation is the Holy Spirit working in the life of those whom God has chosen, or as the Bible calls the elect. So the Holy Spirit has a ministry of calling, baptism. By the way, let me give you a, a verse on baptism. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The verse I quoted on uh, indwelling is 1 Corinthians 6, 20. A verse I quoted on regeneration was John 3, 5. So I wanted to give you these verses. And then let me tell you something else he does the moment of your conversion. He gifts you. This is incredible. Here's a verse, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, that everyone, every single believer has been given a gift. You at least have one. Some of you have multiple gifts. That you've been given for the edification of the entire body. So the Holy Spirit doesn't just place you in the body. You're meant to have a work. You're meant to have a ministry in the body of Christ. Well, where do we see and experience your gift uh, your ministry in the body of Christ in our local bodies. That's one reason we have membership. We can identify who's in this body and everyone in this body has gifts that when those gifts are employed, bring great encouragement, bring great life, bring great healing, uh, bring great sharpening uh, to the rest of the body. That's 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 7. Those gifts include encouragement. They include teaching. They include administration. They include helps or mercy. Uh, they include hospitality. They include prayer. They include discernment, even rebuke. So what is your gift? You may go, I, I don't have the first clue. That'd be, a, that'd be a great application of this sermon that you begin to ask the question to the Holy Spirit, what have you placed in me? 
What desires do I have? What talents do I have? What abilities do I have? What leanings do I have? What needs do I see that there's an inclination in me to think, you know what, I could help with that? Or what passion, I'd love to be a part of that. You're not meant to be a Christian sitting on the sidelines in your church. You're meant to employ a gifting that's supernaturally given to you by the Holy Spirit for the edification of the whole. Every single member of the body of Christ has one. Don't waste your gift. In fact, we're all counting on you to employ your gift. Obviously, I hope that one of my gifts is teaching, or else I'm in the wrong line of work. But the gift of teaching is not a greater gift. We don't see that. We see the greatest gifts are faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of all is love. Teaching is not meant to be put on a pedestal. We in the American church have put it on a pedestal. We flocked around the personalities and gifted teachers of our faith. Teaching is an important gift, but they're all important. What is your gift, and how are you using it to bring edification to the body? The Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. He regenerates us. He indwells us. Uh, he gifts us. And then let me give you my favorite one. He seals us. This is Ephesians 1, 13. Having believed, you were given a seal, the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You were sealed. I love this. This is the believer's assurance. The moment you're washed in the blood of Christ, sincerely repenting for sins, washed in the blood, the Holy Spirit doesn't just place you in the body of Christ in some lingering, inconsequential way. He seals you like you are in Christ. Christ is in you, and it is done. It is literally Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished. No amount of immaturity or sinfulness on your part will break the seal of the Holy Spirit. And according to his promise, he will be at work. He does his work. is not finished at salvation. It's just beginning. He'll now be in you, as Jesus says, forever, sanctifying you into the very image, conforming you into the image of his son. You'll be becoming more like Jesus as you are in love with Jesus and you strive to obey his commands out of response to the gospel. This is the normative pattern of a believer following Christ. And gang, we couldn't get there. We couldn't do it apart from the helper, apart from the counselor, the paraclete given us to come alongside and empower us to do what we can't otherwise do. Okay, this is all the work that happens before and at the moment of salvation. Calling before, at the moment of salvation, baptism, regeneration, gifting, sealing, indwelling, all at the moment of salvation. And then the work continues. Second Thess, I'll read quickly to you. Second Thess uh, 2.13. I want to write that verse down. It says, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. How are you saved? You're saved by believing in Christ. And then you're continuing to be saved by the sanctification of the Spirit. That's what it says. You repent of your sins. You are going to be saved once and for all by trusting in Christ. The penalty of sin is gone. But God doesn't just leave you there in your spiritual infancy. He gives you a helper to bring you along, to, uh, to grow you to maturity in Christ. And we all have a part to play in that maturing work on behalf of our brothers and sisters. And he does that. It's the, it's the Spirit's role to sanctify uh, 
by the way, I'm glad I'm going to have more weeks to unpack this because there's just too much to say now. But, but what does that look like? Let me, let, me, let me just give you an appetizer. He illumines us to truth. This is all what we're going to get in Scripture in the next two chapters in John. This is also seen in other parts of Scripture that we read the Word. We don't read it alone. Why? We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. So we go to God's Word. No one understands the truth of God's Word more than God himself. God the Spirit helps us to discern what's true in his word and what application he has for us. That's the magic of a quiet time. That's the, that's the, that's the excitement. You're not just reading some fictional account or historical narrative. You're not just learning information when you open God's word. You're communing with God over his word. And the Holy Spirit is translating, interpreting, bringing good questions, bringing often conviction. And now there's this give and take. There's this cooperation and surrender to the Spirit. And sometimes I bow my neck. Sometimes I'm callous. Sometimes I'm stubborn. I'm glad he doesn't leave me in stubbornness. But the more that I cooperate with him, again, helpers, not the idea that he merely does the work for me. It's the idea that I'm trying to do what I can't otherwise do until he comes alongside of me. So the availability I have for his presence, for his conviction to pour in, the more easily I am willing to be broken in sin, to be malleable, to be surrendered, to hear, to probe, to go to a friend and say, you know what I, was, you know what I felt like God was leading me in my quietness? Morning? Does this sound right to you? Can't decide, is this the spirit? And look, I don't always know. God doesn't always speak to me audibly. There's movings in my heart. There's thoughts that come to mind. There's places I end up in my time with the Lord that aren't where I started. And I always think, okay, did the Holy Spirit get me here and why? Because that's what I'm doing when I open my Bible. The helper alive in me, illuminating me to the truth of God's word so that I can become more like him and obey his commandments. Amen? glorious what the Holy Spirit does. Can't imagine trying to navigate God's word. And by the way, if, if every time you open the Bible, it's a dead document and you're lost, you gotta ask the question, is the Holy Spirit in me? By the way, he is if you're saved. No, no possibility that you're saved without him. The question will be, have you sincerely repented of your sin and trusted Christ? There ought to be an aliveness to God's word. Even as you're a babe who craves milk, even before you get it, you, you crave it. All right. I went on a rabbit trail and I'm totally lost as to where I am. Okay, okay. Illumining of the Spirit. <laughs> and the Spirit also helps us to pray. Gosh, my time's almost up. I'm going to I'm gonna have to just move, move along and get more to this in the next few weeks. I know you guys, especially with young ones, are probably hey, kids hanging from the rafters at this point. But the, the Spirit helps us to learn to pray. The Spirit even prays for us. Doesn't that feel good? Can we just bask in that for a moment? That, that we groan and the Spirit translates. I can literally be before the Lord going, oh, I can grieve, I can hurt, I can long, I cannot even know what's appropriate to pray, and the Spirit is translating. He's just like Catherine tells me that Mac was asking for an Oreo. Didn't sound like it, but she translated to me. And then I can minister at work in his life. Listen, he, uh, he empowers us. Let's give you this uh, last one, and then I'll find the runway here to a close. He empowers us. Acts 1, I'd be remiss not to, not to at least introduce this. He says, wait here, and when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will have power. You'll now have power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. 
So I was talking to a friend this week who said, man, I always feel lost, it, it just even how to share the gospel at work. And I get it, me too. When I'm not filled with the Spirit, let me talk about that. When I'm not, uh, uh, when the Spirit's not full, I, I, the Spirit's the one that gives me courage. He's the one, he'll, uh, John 16, he'll, he'll give me the words I even need. The, the, the power to be his witness, to not cower down, to tell the truth when it's hard, even, to, even at the risk of persecution, to move forward into that. That's the empowering of the Spirit. That's the work he does to empower us. I was watching some old baseball uh, on TV this week. The, the reruns, of course, we don't have the live sports yet, but it is baseball season. So uh, uh, it was the Yankees-Red Sox. Some of you might have seen that. They were showing all the old games um, where the Red, Red Sox came back and won four games in a row and broke the curse, yada, yada. Uh, and it, David Ortiz hit that walk-off in the 12th of game four to prolong the series that year. And I was just w- watching his swing. I was watching what a great hitter he is. He, uh, one of my boys, he's his favorite hitter, Big Poppy. We just love watching him hit. And I was thinking how much work has gone into that, how much training, how much coaching. And, of course, I'm in John 14 this week, so everything kind of moves through the lens of John 14. And I was thinking, you know, he must have an incredible hitting coach. That'd kind of be like the Holy Spirit, the one. Count- and then I thought, you know, no, that's not good enough because the hitting coach doesn't go up there with him. You know, the hitting coach gives him advice and says, good luck. But then he's out there. You'd have to take more than just the hitting coach, who is at least a person. But the Holy Spirit's like the bat. The whole, literally, he'd be up there with no bat, with no Holy Spirit. He has no ability to accomplish the very thing he wants to do. There's no power. There's no connection. There's nothing that causes the movement. There's nothing that brings the victory. That contact that sends the ball soaring, that brings the crowd to their feet, is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I understand the bat's not a person. This is a flawed analogy, but understand it's baseball season, so I've got to try. But it's, it's the coach, it's the bat, it's, it's the Holy Spirit's the counselor, the advocate, the helper, the empowerer. We cannot live out the life of Christ apart from his necessary and crucial help. And so the command is Ephesians 5. Now, all of that's what the Holy Spirit does. Isn't that great? But none of that was a command. Here's the command. Ephesians 5 says, be f- do not get, do not, or Ephesians 4, 35, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. In other words, don't let wine control you. Be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. You be surrendered to the Holy Spirit. You be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now we're command. Finally, there's a command. Your job is to understand the power of the third person of the Trinity alive in you, and you relate to him in a, in a posture of surrender, in a posture of humble filming. I had a pastor growing up, uh, Dr. Bill Balknight, a uh, gentle, great pastor, still a great cheerleader in my life, great encourager. He used to say this, it's never, I've never forgotten. He would say, we need a 24-hour supply of the Holy Spirit. So he'd say, I ask God every morning, I say, God, today, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Control my thoughts. Don't let me get into the flesh. Help me to be aware and await to the opportunity to share the gospel. Let me love my wife well. Let me die to my selfish pride well. Like today, God, and he said that day on his mind all day, it was like a heightened sensitivity, an awareness of what the Spirit was doing. He said, if I only prayed that once, Kenan, even though he never leaves, I would grow slowly callous and numb. 
It just wouldn't be good for me. Every morning I need to say, okay, God, here we go again. I'm not going alone. I'm claiming it. I've got the Holy Spirit alive in me. It's true. It's a promise. So today, fill me with your spirit. Fill me means be controlled by. And so I think it would be wise for everyone in Christ every day to pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, the passage ends this morning because the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. It doesn't see him. It can't see the Spirit, and they don't know him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Listen, he doesn't say you see him. We don't see him, but you know him means you have an experience. You've had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. If you're going, how do I know him? How do you know him? Through his calling you to Jesus, through his regenerating your stone-cold, dead heart of sin to a fleshly heart alive that delights in God and seeks to obey his commandments, through the baptizing, the placing you into the body of Christ, the indwelling is taking up residence in you so that everything about your life is slowly doing a 180, to his sealing you that there's an assurance, you know that you will be with the Lord and you long for that one day, to the gifts he's placed in you that when you Use them to edify the body, bring incredible joy. There's eternal impact going on. To what happens at times, you're in sin, you grieve the Holy Spirit, you quench the Holy Spirit, then you feel that weight of conviction. To the times that you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're operating out of a power that's not your own. In all of these ways, you and I know him. He dwells in us and he's with us. Romans 8, 16, let me read you this verse in closing. Paul says this about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit himself, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. How do you know that you're his? The Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are his. Well, in way of closing, um, the application for any one of us who are in Christ is, I pray, a deeper understanding of and gratitude of the Holy Spirit than we've ever had. Be filled with the Spirit. That's your one command. That's your application. You cooperate. Kenan, peace surrendered. Just today. We'll, we'll leave tomorrow's worries for tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll ask the same thing. But God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I can't obey you apart from the Spirit's work in my life from his help. And if you're out there and you're one who has no experience with the Holy Spirit, then the application for you is to surrender to Christ. Maybe the work of the Holy Spirit is right now drawing you to Jesus, making you aware of your sin, your need for Christ, illuminating you to the beauty of the gospel that you'd surrender for the first time to his calling and receive Jesus as Lord. Father, thank you so much that we can linger in your word and talk about the incredible ministry of the Holy Spirit, impossible to talk about in one sermon. Lord, you just dropped an acorn there. You said, I'm gonna give you another helper. He'll be with you forever. And in that word helper, there is so much that the Bible then gives color and clarity and context on. Lord, we are yours. We love you. We thank you that you have saved us. We thank you for the helper that you've given us, and we pray that you would, Lord, that you would allow us to delight in you and obey your commandments out of a surrendered heart and a surrendered life and an empowerment of your Holy Spirit. 
with greater effectiveness, greater capacity today than yesterday, greater tomorrow than today, that we would be a spirit-filled people as we commune with you, our Lord and Savior, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you. We thank you, Spirit, for the work you're doing with us even today. Thank you for your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.